Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop may be recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Emerging Treatments from Metastatic Melanoma, and this is part two of a two-part series on living with advanced skin cancer. In today's program, is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations as well as, uh, as melanoma um, organizations as well, so Melanoma International Foundation, Melanoma Research Foundation, um, Richard David Kahn Melanoma Foundation. So that collaboration has really enabled us actually to even reach more people because of that. Um, and your interest in the program, of course. And so we have on the program today over 425 participants. You actually come from all over the United States, from both rural, urban, and suburban areas. And um, we also have participants today from uh, other countries, including Canada, Switzerland, and United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. Uh, today's program is supported by Bristol Myers Squibb and, and an independent educational grant from Merck and Company Inc. and Novartis Oncology. And I really want to thank them for their support to this program. Now we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Gregory Daniels, clinical professor of medicine, Morris. UCSD Cancer Center, VA San Diego Healthcare System. And Dr. Daniels will be addressing an overview of metastatic melanoma, including diagnosing and staging, current standard of care and new treatment approaches, harnessing the immune system in treating melanoma, the emerging role of immunotherapy, and tips for caring for your skin during cancer treatments. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Daniels. Great. Thank you very much, Carolyn, and um, I appreciate the opportunity to, to go over this. It is a long list, so bear with me. I'm going to try to put in in 15 minutes um, something helpful, but we do have a question and answer period afterwards that both Dr. Wong and I are looking forward to, to hearing from the audience. So I'll start with a quick overview of uh, melanoma. And melanoma comes from pigmented cells, and today's uh, call, we're going to focus on cutaneous melanoma, that, that uh, melanoma that happens from the skin. However, uh, pigment cells happen in other parts of our body, including our GI tract and our, and our eyes, and so we do have what we call mucosal melanomas. These can happen anywhere, for example, the esophagus or, or other parts in the um, GI tract. And uh, ocular melanomas, these are uh, primary tumors or tumors that originate in the eye. And while they share the name melanoma and they share a common cell, they have very different pathways that make them cancer, and so their responses to our treatments tend to be different. Um, and so I'll just acknowledge that there are those other melanomas out there, and I'm going to, though, specifically focus on skin melanoma. Basal cells and squamous cells are much more common. Um, they are dealt with by Gee, practically almost everybody that has skin feels like, especially here in Southern California. Um, but luckily, um, they're uh, tumors that tend not to spread. That's in contrast with melanoma that um, has another extreme in, in behavior, and that is even with very small tumors, you can shed cells off that go either in the lymphatic system or in the bloodstream at a very early stage. And we're talking uh, millimeters of uh, tumor uh, can be deadly. So we do treat it um, aggressively in our surgical management and our systemic uh, management, and I'll go over some of that. Um, besides obviously having skin as a risk factor, it's the type of skin, uh, patterns of sun exposure and family histories that, that factor into our risk factors. But everybody's at risk for melanoma and should be aware that if they see a spot, see a spot change, they need to see somebody about it. Um, that spot hopefully is benign but uh, needs to be explored. And particularly these days because the incidence of melanoma is increasing and it's increasing in, in all ages. So I'm going to 
jump into um, the first topic, diagnosis and staging. Um, because of this risk of spread, um, we look at melanoma um, on various anatomic factors. Anatomic is something we can measure with a ruler or a scan. So the depth of invasion is part of our staging for melanoma. If it invades um, below this basement membrane in the skin, we call that invasive melanoma. And then with uh, a simple ruler, uh, we can tell if it's going in a very superficial thin melanoma or a deeper one. And the deeper it goes, the higher the risk, and it triggers certain things that your dermatologist, surgeon, and oncologist will do according to that risk. The second um, thing we take into account in staging is lymph node involvement. And over the last several, uh, it feels like now, now decades, um, the idea of lymph node assessment has evolved from in the early days um, looking at all lymph nodes and taking them out in the draining area of the lesion to uh, much more selective uh, processes that are called sentinel lymph node assessments to now even working in some fancy molecular testing, at least fancy according to 2019, on seeing who's at risk for even having uh, uh, tumor cells go to the lymph node and then deciding on sentinel lymph node assessment to that point. So lots of stuff's even happening at the staging level. And lastly, whether it's spread beyond that particular lesion, that particular lymph node, and whether it's spread beyond into other parts of the body. And those three variables make up our staging system of stage one, two, three, and four. Um, if there are more specific questions, there's a lot of resources on the web. Cancer Care um, can point you um, in some of those directions, as well as other organizations such as NCCN. Um, so next topic was current standard of care and new approaches. Um, and again, the standard of care, I, I can't not mention um, surgery. Um, Surgery's been and uh, will remain, I'm sure, the primary therapy for most melanomas because most melanomas, when found early, are cured with surgical resection. Um, we're refining uh, some of those algorithms uh, that we're using in surgery as far as how wide we need to go and what lymph nodes we need to assess, uh, but surgery remains uh, really the standard of care for most patients with melanoma. Now, depending on the stage, um, we use stage to help risk adjust patients. So if uh, it's an early stage, um, we are more likely to recommend observation type of uh, strategies. If it's a more advanced stage, uh, we're going to talk about adjuvant treatments, additional treatments to help keep the cancer away, and I'll talk about some of those. And then, unfortunately, if we find it spread, then we have to look at therapies for uh, metastatic disease. I'm going to focus um, my talk on immune therapies, and Dr. Wong is going to hit the exciting area of targeted therapies. So harnessing the immune system uh, to treat melanoma um, boy, has been an effort that spans more than 100 years. Um, but really, uh, major advances have happened this last 10 years. I'll start with adjuvant therapy. Again, somebody has a surgery. Uh, we we feel that we've gotten all the disease um, that's there, but we know historically, based on the stage, that there's a risk that it's coming back. This is um, true in many cancers that we deal with, such as colon and breast cancer. But unlike those cancers, we do not use chemotherapies as a way to help prevent it from coming back. We focused on immune therapies and, again, more recently targeted treatments. The immune therapy that used to be used is interferon. I'll just cut the discussion short and say no more interferon. Um, the value that interferon brought, um, while was measurable, was relatively small. And so since then, um, two classes of medications have come out to replace it. One is represented by a drug called ipilimumab or Yervoy, and the other ones are um, pembrolizumab and nivolumab or Keytruda and Optivo, and those um, target the PD-1 pathway. Now, again, things are changing rapidly, but currently um, most of us, when we pick an immune therapy for keeping melanoma away, we might pick a PD-1 inhibitor, again, either uh, pembrolizumab or nivolumab. And the FDA has approved these agents in stage 3 and above um, patients who have uh, their disease cut out because clinical trials have shown us that it improves what we call disease-free survival. 
and that is a good thing, living without melanoma. Um, however, we're still collecting data as this is all uh, driven by clinical trials and the information we get from them. And we are uh, getting long-term data now as to how these patients are doing, not just two or three years down the road, but now four to, to six and seven years down the road. And in about a week or two, um, we're talking here in um, May, so end of May and beginning of June, we're going to get updated data um, that hopefully will help, again, refine what the best treatment is for the particular patient in the adjuvant setting. But I think in the short term, um, it's going to be a, a PD-1 blocking antibody. Um, it's probably a good plug, again, for clinical trials that Mike Wong, uh, Dr. Wong will talk about. Um, but in the adjuvant treatment, we're slipping in um, what's called neoadjuvant therapy. And this is for those patients that come in, and unfortunately we know that it might be in the lymph nodes or we know it has spread, but instead of going straight to surgery to cut it off, um, it may make sense to expose the patient to treatments that can shrink the disease to assess uh, whether they respond to these treatments, and to potentially make surgery more effective and hopefully influence outcomes so that we have better outcomes for patients. So the, this is called a neoadjuvant treatment. Currently, this is only done in clinical trials. And the reason is, um, while the idea sounds great, let's give uh, a short exposure of drug and get all that information and make the surgery better, uh, we still need to validate that that's actually a good approach. One can imagine some downsides to this, such as, a delaying surgery that may be curative at this point in time, but if we were to delay it inappropriately, it might not be curative later. Or um, there might be a side effect from the drug that could be severe that could, again, delay the surgery that could cure. So right now, until we get some good um, information on what the right way to go, neoadjuvant treatment approaches, I feel, should be uh, in a clinical trial. Going on to the treatment of metastatic disease in the last few minutes, um, again, another area that's really um, hopping. Um, we were limited to um, some, some treatments before, such as high-dose interleukin-2, uh, which was developed at the National Cancer Institute and uh, became an approved drug back in the 1990s for select patients who could tolerate it. And um, with high-dose IL-2, a few people um, had long-term disease control which um, opened the window to the idea of using immune therapies to cure cancer. Um, that, um, that idea spurred the development of ipilimumab or anti-CTLA-4, and then, again, these other checkpoint inhibitors, um, PD-1 blockers, which have been FDA-approved, and, and then the combinations. So immune therapies have, has really grown up in the last 10 years from an inpatient um, select uh, group of patients to now mainstream where patients are coming into the outpatient, getting uh, infusions every three weeks or every four weeks with medications that have the potential for long-term disease control for patients. Uh, and what, again, what I mean by that is the cancer goes away, we stop the drug, and the cancer stays away. Um, which is a really, um, uh, unfortunately, novel concept in, the, in metastatic disease, the idea that we can actually set back uh, cancer to the point where we don't have to worry about it again. That's not addressing everybody to date, um, obviously, um, or not obviously, but unfortunately, um, and there's still many patients that um, either respond and stop responding or don't respond at all to our current immune therapies. And again, that's where clinical trials come in. So besides the combinations of checkpoints, there's combinations such as injections into the tumor of viruses or other agents to change how the immune system may look at the tumor and then add in a, a uh, immune stimulant on top of that. Cell therapies uh, get in the news um, nowadays with CAR T-cells for blood cancers. There's CAR T-cells for solid tumors, including uh, melanoma being developed, as well as other T-cells and NK cell approaches. Um, so I would say stay tuned for this because not only is it giving us uh, a new therapy, it's giving us insights into um, other areas to target with the immune system. And T-cells 
um, appear to be taking advantage of uh, specific changes that are happening in the cancer. And one of these changes uh, is termed neoantigens. These are new mutations that weren't um, in us before the cancer got here. T cells can recognize these neoantigens, these uniqueness of the tumor, and then target these. And while cell therapies have uh, opened the door to this, um, other people are trying to take advantage of these neoantigens by, for example, developing a more effective vaccine um, that alerts the immune system to these protein changes, or picking out the specific T cells that recognizes neoantigens. So some really exciting clinical trials that are coming up. My last um, topic I was given was tips for caring for your skin during cancer treatment. Again, I think Dr. Wang will have something to say about this, but um, for a lot of our um, either targeted therapies or the immune therapies, we certainly get um, skin toxicities, um, and much of it, unfortunately, is um, exacerbated by sun exposure. So um, minimizing um, sun, sun time, uh, topical moisturizers, and in some cases we have to go to topical immune suppressants uh, to control these skin reactions. Um, and that's not just for the skin, um, because these immune uh, therapies are ongoing in your body, and they have the potential to, to unleash other immune uh, toxicities directed against, say, the liver or the lungs, and we might have to step in and turn these off with other uh, immune suppressions. So it's an, um, a very active time in uh, melanoma and melanoma research, and hopefully that gives you a flavor of what's going on in uh, immune therapies. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Daniels. That was really an outstanding um, really overview of melanoma and metastatic melanoma and its treatment, and uh, we look forward to questions for you during the Q&A. So thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Michael Wong, and Dr. Wong is... Um, is Professor of Medicine, Melanoma Medical Oncology, the University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Wong is going to be addressing targeted therapy, the role of precision medicine, clinical trials, how research adds to your treatment options, follow-up care, including side effects, symptom, and pain management, and key questions to ask your healthcare team about your treatment and care. And it's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Wong. Dr. Messner, it's uh, my uh, privilege and pleasure to be able to speak to you and the audience today about these topics, and, and I thank Dr. Daniels for uh, a wonderful uh, preamble and a real state-of-the-art discussion of things. And if anything, uh, the audience should be getting a, a sense that melanoma today is one of the areas of hope and opportunity. And we routinely have the expectation of not just uh, uh, um, getting a response against the cancer directly, but also long-term outcomes, and in plain English, cure. So targeted therapy is, is, um, is therapy which we are, in this case, I'm going to restrict the discussion because even what Dr. Daniels talked about, which is shrinking the immune system, is in fact some sort of targeted therapy. But here, it's commonly meant that we are targeting specific genes and proteins inside the cancer cell. We, we, we are the direct beneficiary of decade, decades of laboratory and basic science research. And what they, the scientists have discovered are, is the key pathway, the gene that turns on, that makes the cancer, the, the, the pigmented cell transform itself from a benign cell to one which is cancerous. These are what we call driver mutations. A mutation is a change in DNA leading to a change in a protein, leading to a change in the behavior of the cell. And the, the, the culprit gene is a gene called BRAF, B-R-A-F, and, it, and it's not just any mutation. It's a very specific mutation at the 600th position of that, uh, of that uh, protein, the 600 amino acid, and uh, we call it the V600 mutation. Why is that important? Because the medicines that we're going to talk about are directed solely against that mutation. So that's important because patients sometimes say, well, why don't we just, why don't we just get the drug and we'll see what happens? Well, we, we've done that in the past when we didn't know, when we were uh, more desperate, when we were just working things out. And uh, in simple terms, you get all the side effects and zero benefit. So it's very important to to have the mutation. So some, I just saw a patient a few minutes ago in which uh, he just had the surgery 
we're bringing that patient back uh, in, in, at some future date, very close uh, to now, with the mutational analysis. So these things take time. They are performed on tissue which is already resected. So I tell my patients that the original biopsy or the surgical resection is enough material to go to, to do the work on. We do not need more unless it, unless there's not enough tissue <clears throat> that was taken initially. These uh, these uh, treatments come in the form of pills. These are pills that are formulated to uh, to really attack not just that, that V600 uh, uh, gene, but the whole pathway because these uh, these proteins interact with other proteins, which interact with other proteins. And we have found that the BRAF pathway uh, is coupled uh, uh, very closely to another pathway called MEK, M-E-K. Hey, guys, I don't make these names up, the scientists do, but here we are today. So so the standard of care treatment in melanoma for individuals who have that V600 mutation is to use medicines that target both the mutant BRAF, the V600 one, and another uh, molecule called MEK. So we call this uh, BRAF-MEK inhibition strategy, and there are uh, at least three manufacturers which have a combination of these two things. They come in the form of pills, and um, and then they all have a few things that are different for between these manufacturers. All are FDA-approved in this indication. However, um, for the most part, these are medicines which are taken by mouth. They they have, and I tell my patients that be taken consistently, uh, religiously, and you have to track what uh, uh, what you're taking and when you're taking it. Remember, and this is one of those few situations in oncology where taking um, medicines directed to two targets, the BRAF and the MEK, um, you know, give you less side effects than if you just took one by itself. It's kind of crazy because usually you take two pills, you should get more side effects. You actually here you take two different pills, and you get fewer side effects. That's that's kind of the way it is, and it's something we discovered. So these are uh, medicines uh, targeted to specific mutations, that's why we call them targeted therapies. It's now a good time to start talking about uh, um, side effects because it sort of wraps into this. So Dr. Daniel spoke about immune therapy, and these are medicines given by intravenous uh, uh, um, you know, administration. And, the, and when you use immune therapy, the, almost all the side effects, if, if not all, are a consequence of uh, triggering your body's immune system to not just fight the cancer, but to fight yourself. So the strategies there are to use medicines that will uh, suppress. I, I would use, like to use the word titrate. In other words, you know, you turn down the thermostat of the immune system to, to get that under control. With targeted therapies, these are medicines which you have to take all the time. And so the side effects that can occur usually have to do with uh, 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 you know, uh, side effects uh, of taking the pills, and they tend to be chronic. They tend to be there as you take the medicines. And instead of going through sort of specific side effects, which I don't think we have the time for, nor is it a fruitful discussion, it's important to just realize that uh, for medicines related to target therapy, where you're taking the pills, one of the reasons why it's very important to track what you're taking, when you're taking, and, and to be fairly <clears throat> precise about it is because one of the first things we're going to do as physicians trying to manage any toxicity is to start changing dose and schedule. So having someone who, who is able to tell us how to do it enables us to really come in and help modify dose and schedule. Why is that important? Most of the side effects, if not all, from target therapies uh, will go away if you stop the pills, most. That's why it's, it's one of those things that you can really modulate and change. So that's an important part of, of, doing, of, of what we're doing. So again, I'm not, I don't want to just go through you know, each individual side effect, but more or less to put down the principles of what, what, uh, what's involved. This segues directly into another thing, Dr. Mezer, which is you know, your healthcare team. It's not just asking questions to them, but one of the things uh, I, I encourage my patients to know is, I, you know, after I give them the card uh, to my clinic, says, now what do you do if you get in trouble? So I want them to wave the card at me and say, I call this number. That's important because, uh, because the side effects, for instance, from target therapies um, uh, don't become hugely problematic if we get hold of it early. So you don't ever want to transform a minor problem to a huge problem by not picking up on things. And likewise for side effects from the immune therapy. Your immune system attacks things in an escalating fashion. It starts low, gets, and it starts to attack uh, in 
increasingly vigorous fashion. So, and that's true for attacking the cancer as it is for the side effects caused by these, by immune therapy. So again, being able to nip it in the bud, as I say to my patients, is an important part of managing toxicity. So as part of, you know, how to interact with your team, knowing how to get hold of folks and how to, uh, to, to get hold of the right people if you have a side effects is important. And that's also one of the questions that you should ask your healthcare team, which is, you know, you know what, uh, what side effects should I expect from? What are the common things you've seen? Because nobody wants to be surprised from this. One of the side effects, for instance, with these target therapies that surprised the doctors, even the doctors when we first started doing this many, many years ago, was fever. Now, not all these medicines would do it. As I said to you, there are different manufacturers making at least three different types of these uh, targeted therapies, um, but fever can be part of it. When we didn't know in the beginning, we were, uh, we were taken aback by, by, by fever. We thought this was infection, which it is not. It is a direct consequence of the, the medicines causing your body's uh, uh, built-in thermostat to, to malfunction. And, and because of that, if you tell someone what to expect, it can be better managed. So one of the questions I always encourage my patients to ask uh, their healthcare provider is to, to, to get a sense of what the common side effects ought to be and what the management uh, uh, should be. And you know, the worst-case scenario is to be stuck at home at night by yourself having a side effect, and that's a terrible place to be. It's both lonely and frightening. So having uh, a, a place where you can go or knowing how to get hold of someone if you have these things is important. The last thing I want to talk about is a very important topic because everything we've talked about now, all the medicines I've talked about, all the medicines that Dr. Daniels talked about at one time or another was part of a clinical trial. And I tell patients clinical trials is a organized, structured way for us to bring new medicines out to people. We don't just open the cupboards and say, hey, try this. Uh, why? Because even though it may help you, it may help nobody else, and that individual patient may not benefit from all the other people getting the medicines. So a clinical trial is a structured way to do this. For the most part, many of our trials are structured in such a way that uh, that safety is our primary concern. So we have, a trim, uh, we have people on a schedule. We're looking for specific side effects, and we capture all the side effects. And should they... Uh, and, and should we discover side effects which are unusual or unexpected, that information is disseminated across the system to all the other people doing the same clinical trial. So, and, so my patient, for instance, in a clinical trial will benefit from the experience of my colleague in another cancer center, in another state, or even in another country doing the same trial. So it's a, it's a structure to, ena uh, to enable the, the safe use of new strategies and new drugs. So... Uh, so uh, when, when offered the opportunity to go on the trial, one of the things that you should always ask is, uh, the physician is, what, do you, what, what are you trying to do with this trial? What's, uh, and, and you should not be afraid to say, what's in it for me, right? And what are the anticipated side effects? And lastly, what's involved in doing so? Some trials, because, uh, because of the way it's delivered, requires people to come into the institution, uh, on a regular basis, others uh, less so. So it's always important to know what's in it for me, what's my impact on my life, right? And these are questions which uh, nobody's going to be offended by it being asked. This is what we do, and uh, and and this is uh, this is the mechanism to which we are able to get new drugs to people. Now, one of the things that's uh, uh, also important, and I wanted to touch upon this as well as <clears throat> Dr. Daniels touched upon it as well uh, early, is in the management of side effects uh, is skin and other things. I'm going to just delve into that a little bit deeper uh, because that's one of the things that catches all, us all by surprise. So in addition to talking to your doctor and, and, and to uh, understanding how best to access the healthcare system and how to get hold of folks. You know, I always tell patients, you know, when when you are made aware of the potential side effects of, of these uh, medicines, you know, have a strategy in place. So I'm going to use a common example with targeted therapy, which is with photosensitivity, which is your skin becomes very sensitive to sunlight, right? So that's an example of a side effect that, that is uh, unfortunately very common with targeted therapy. So what do you do about that, right? So knowing that, I tell my patients now, you have, we do not tell people to go live in a cave. That's crazy. But on the other hand, you have to be sun smart, right? You have to, you now have to start thinking to, you know, long sleeve shirts, wide brim hats, sunglasses, right? Thinking about, do you really need to wash your car at, at noon with your shirt off? Well, 
shirt off, right? Don't do that. But you know what I'm trying to say, just a sense of smartness about these things. And you should apply that sort of thinking to uh, the common side effects that you learn about, right? So have a strategy in place on both sides, both on your do reaching your doctors and also what you yourself can do personally. So I think I've touched upon the salient points. There's a lot to talk about here, and I think the, the question and answer uh, part will be very informative and helpful, and I'll just stop here. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you very much, Dr. Wong. That was really, uh, again, outstanding and really um, covered a, a lot of the uh, important issues that people need to be aware of in terms of, of really coping with um, the treatments for metastatic melanoma and also some of the newer treatments that are there as well. Um, and, bef and so please, everyone, start preparing your questions because I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care services, and then we're going to write into the questions. Um, cancer care is a national organization. Our services are all free. We do offer both practical and financial assistance to people. We have a copay foundation, and we also offer counseling services, and we do those on the telephone and online, and we do so you can talk to one of our social workers one-on-one -on, -one on the phone. You also can join a support group. That's either a telephone support group or an online support group. And um, we have uh, a great many online support groups, and indeed they cover all age groups of adults and also uh, different relationships. So you can have a, 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 um, a, a support group for caregivers of people living with melanoma. You can have a, a program for people themselves living with melanoma, metastatic melanoma. Um, you can also join perhaps a, a young adult who may be a caregiver that has a workshop an online support group for them. And we also have an online support group for older persons and middle-aged persons, separate groups um, uh, who are dealing or as caregivers um, or else dealing with melanoma. So we cover all the different ages and issues that people may confront or partners living with someone or partner partner of someone who has melanoma and wants to have a support group as well. So really support groups for, for everyone. Um, and some people prefer the online groups because they are online, which means that they don't happen at a specific time of the day. So people can post pretty much around the clock and different time zones. Um, for the telephone support groups, they do, they do occur at a specific time. So just in terms of your time zone difference, for some people it works out really well. For others, they prefer the online group or the individual counseling session. And um, we also offer these workshops, lots of them. So there are many more of these workshops coming up, so you'll be hearing about them. And we have publications that are based on them, or fact sheets. So there's lots of informational materials that you can access from Cancer Care. So it's kind of pretty much a soup to nuts, or I'd like to think it's a kind of a one-stop shopping. You can call us, and if we don't have it, we can connect you to a place that does. And if we do have it, then you can easily, easily then access those free services. So now with that being said, um, I think we now have time, lots of time for questions. I want to thank our speakers for really allowing that to happen. And so I'm going to ask Crystal to explain to how to queue up for questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And um, if we don't get your question um, at the very end of the call, I'll explain to you um, how to get those questions answered that we didn't get to. So, Crystal? <laughs> thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one, on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is open. Well, thank you so much. I listened to the last seminar on the advanced skin cancer, and this is great. Thank you. Um, I'm a nurse and a breast cancer survivor 12 years ago. My question is this. Can radiation be a pre-change your body that you're more apt to get melanoma for patients who had radiation? And does it change the skin? This is very important. Is there clinical trials on that? Also, I've heard in the news, and my cancer surgeon had told me that some sunscreens or many more can change with your hormones, even um, if you were double negative, but women who are double positive. And these sunscreens can go against everything in the skin, and you change your skin pigment that sunscreens are maybe not as safe as we think it is. Thank you so much. Well, that's a good question, Stephanie. Thank you. And, uh, well, Dr. Daniels, do you want to um, address the, the uh, sure. um, well, try both questions, actually, but radiation questions? Yeah, yeah I agree. Good questions. Um, so radiation, the type of radiation that's used um, 
in the uh, adjuvant treatment for breast cancer is ionizing radiation. It's an external beam, and um, the it does not appear to be a big risk factor for melanoma, um, at least in the dosings that we've used and looking long-term. It does, though, have long-term issues with other cancers, and that would be sarcomas particularly. Um, ionizing radiation puts us at risk for that um, down the road, so the area definitely needs to be monitored. I wouldn't be worried particularly about melanoma, but um, either sarcoma or non-melanoma skin cancers. As far as um, studies looking at that, I think, you know, I'd take one step back and say radiation in general, whether it's UV radiations um, or others, are definitely being looked at as far as um, what specific changes um, are being driven in the cancer cells, how are they using that damage to escalate their malignant potentials. So um, it is being um, looked at as kind of trying to figure out um, the ultimate quest, which is the, the prevention of cancers. And, you know, that opens up the sunscreen, um, and I'd say the sunscreen Pandora's box. And um, uh, it has been conventional wisdom that um, melanoma is a direct uh, result of sun exposure, and that if we minimize sun exposure, we will minimize uh, melanoma. And um, while there's truth in that, there's... Um, there are issues um, with the simple idea of less sun, less melanoma. Um, and sunscreens are an attempt to just go along with that simple interpretation of, of how things are, are happening. And um, while sunscreens have been shown unequivocally to prevent certain skin cancers, such as basal cells and squamous cells, um, their application in melanoma prevention is still a little unclear and more work needs to be done because, as you rightly point out, um, everything uh, has an impact uh, on our bodies, and sunscreens are no exception. And depending on what uh, chemicals are there that are soaking up free radicals, um, they can also do other issues. Or if they have uh, metal in them and little nanoparticles to make them clear, they accumulate in, in our skin and potentially in our other organs. Um, so sunscreens um, are being looked at uh, for safety issues, um, are constantly being uh, studied as far as uh, the benefit in, in cancer care. So I don't have the, the easy answer for you on that one, but um, it's right to keep asking those questions. Excellent. Thank you. And, and Dr. Um, uh, Wong, do you want to add anything to that? Or? Well, uh, Dr. Downs, thank you for it's a great answer. Uh, I, uh, from the radiation point of view, <clears throat> the radiation oncologist is very astutely looking at risk benefit. They have long-term follow-up data, and as of today, uh, what we do know is that the benefit from adjuvant radiation in breast far outweighs the potential uh, downstream bad things that can happen. That data always changes, and they are. Uh, evolving um, as well to some modified dose and uh, fraction to minimize those things. So that's all, they're also evolving in response to that. I tell my patients that, and, and talking about sunscreen, I tell my patients that if you look at folks that live in desert climes, uh, what do they do? I mean, they, it's all barrier protection. So I'm a, bit av a big advocate of physical protection, hats, wide brim hats, high weave, um, you know, uh, technical clothing that, you know, protects most of our, our uh, covers up most of our skin, uh, so on and so forth. You know, wearing pants versus shorts. I mean, I, it feels great to be in the sun. We know it, you know, we, we get endogenous endorphins, and and I, I certainly, uh, I, I, you know, I know that feels great to be out there. But uh, there is such a thing as too much of a good thing as well, so you have to be particularly careful. And I, I agree with everything Dr. Daniel says about, um, you know, sunscreen and, and your use, but I'm, but regardless of that, I tell my patients it's it's barrier above anything. Nothing beats barrier. There is a sense that sunscreen will protect us against everything, but really only buys you a little bit more time out there, right? It's not a panacea for everything. If you're out there for a long period of time, because of work or recreation or so on and so forth, nothing beats barrier protection. Well, this is, I hope this is really helpful to everyone on the call and. Uh, thank you, Stephanie, for that. Very, those very good questions. So, got us off to a really good start here. Excellent. Thank you. And our next question, Crystal. Thank you. Our next question comes from Stephanie S. Your line is open. Hi. Um, 
Dr. Wong, I appreciated your lecture of a few days ago. Um, it was excellent. I have a, a just a quick question here. If one has basal cell carcinoma, does that make them at higher risk for squamous cell carcinoma? And if you have a diagnosis of either of those, are you at increased risk for melanoma? Thank you for your kind words. The short answer is yes, uh, but like Dr. Daniel says, the simple act of sun exposure cannot explain all of the risks, but they do track together. Uh, all those um, cancers you described, ma'am, um, are associated with increased sun exposures. We have people who, because of their occupation or their recreation, or have ex a extensive amount of sun exposure, and it is not uncommon. We call it the, the Dr. Wong trifecta in clinic. You know, you come in, and, it, and in fact, there's a new patient today who had all three. Um, uh, for the simple fact that they track together with sun exposure. So anyone who has had this sort of exposure, I always may, I always tell them uh, what I told my patients this morning, which is, you know, you have to have a dermatologist as part of your team. Uh, we all have uh, of, you know, fully equipped with these cameras and our phone now, and I tell folks if you have, that, that the key thing is change, change in a lesion on your skin. So if you just take one look at it, it's not always possible to tell, but any lesion that changes, grows, becomes more hard and more nodular, that's it. That's something to draw attention to. I, the one, only one tip I, I would suggest is that because pigmentation and how dark a light it is is so important, I said, you know, the, you just shoot it under constant lighting. In other words, uh, sunlight. So, you know, by a window or something so that you always have the same sort of lighting on your skin as you take the picture. Um, so thank you for a great question. Thank you. And um, Dr. Daniels, want to add anything? Or? Yeah, uh, I agree. And... Um, you know, those patients that have um, high high basal cells, um, just unless they have a genetic reason for that, um, it's the sun, and um, the common factor uh, will lead to squamous cells happening too. And then um, we just can't forget that um, melanomas um, are lurking in the background. So unfortunately, if your skin is active with one skin cancer, you kind of have to be aware of the rest. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Um, and our next question, Crystal. Thank you. Our next question comes from Robin R. Your line is open. Thank you. I was very interested in the discussion on targeted therapies, but they all seem to relate to melanomas with the BRAF mutation. Is there anything coming down the pike for melanomas without the BRAF mutation in the way of targeted therapies? Thank you for that question. Um, Dr. Wong, do you want to address that? So I'll start, and of course, uh, Dr. Daniels pipe in. Uh, this is an area of research. There are other mutations that can come up with, free, with some frequency in melanoma, and NRAF and RAS can come up with some frequency. Uh, and there's another one called CKIT, C-K-I-T, although, <coughs> excuse me, the CKIT mutation tends to occur in, in the melanomas that don't come from skin and predominantly, uh, or they come from, you know, soles of feet or or in fingernails. Um, so today, the heart, the, the best evidence is for the BRAF, and that's where all the drugs are. The other ones are still in development. One of the reasons for that is, is the fact that the BRAF mutation confers upon that cell the ability to, to change it from benign to malignant. So we call those mutations driver mutations. Why? Because melanoma, because of its exposure to the sun, can have other uh, mutations, but they're not drivers. They do not make the cell behave fun uh, fundamentally differently. Uh, so that's the issue. So it's not that we don't have mutations, it's that do we have mutations that are driving the cancer. Dr. Daniels, I look forward to any wise words mm -hmm. you might have. Yeah, so I, I think, we, you know, oncology has gotten into this new world where we can identify the drivers, as Mike said, and um, some of these are druggable or targetable by a small molecule, and others are not. Um, and some of that has to do with uh, where their role is in pathways and our ability to slip drugs in there. But I think the really exciting area is going to be in targeted therapies is we're understanding, oh, okay, this mutation happens. Great. That's a pathway, and that feeds into a network of interaction within the cell, and that network then feeds into its interaction with the body. And so as we start to dissect these pathways and networks and 
all the implications that they have. I think we'll get to the next level, uh, which is kind of a holistic, targeted, tailoring approach that is going to take the integration of a lot of information um, and probably information that we gather dynamically on patients. So I agree, in the short term we're still stuck uh, in this um, serving about half the patients who have the BRF mutation, um, but uh, we're, we're getting insights into some new pathways. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and we have a question from our online participants. Um, and this one is for um, Dr. Daniels. If I have melanoma, should my family also be checked by a doctor? Yeah, so um, as I briefly mentioned, the risk factors for melanoma include um, environment and skin type and family history. Um, and so if somebody has a melanoma, um, the risk for first-degree relatives in the absence of even any identifiable um, gene in the family goes up. And that goes up probably for many reasons. Uh, families tend to grow up in the same area. They tend to have the same skin. But they, we're also seeing just the incidence um, two to anywhere from two to four times higher in first-degree relatives of somebody with melanoma. So as uh, currently the lifetime risk for Caucasians, for example, is roughly 2 to 3% to get a melanoma. If you multiply that by almost 5, then you're getting into the 10% realm. Absolutely, um, they should know that melanoma exists, know uh, how to look for it, and in the appropriate um, places, go see a dermatologist and um, and get uh, checked out. So um, uh, get the word out. <laughs> uh, thank you. Excellent. And Dr. Um, Wong, do you want to add anything to that as well? Or? I tell my patients, uh, I say, your kids inherit your good looks, your fair skin, your blue eyes, and so on and so forth. And we all vacation together. So I'll go to Disney together. I'll go to uh, fishing together. I'll go to the lake house together. So the, 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 all these things cluster together. So the risk may be higher. And genetic in the sense that they're your offspring, but not genetic that that there's a gene mutation which causes you know, melanoma to occur with high frequency. In those situations, those patients always show up uh, very early on in their early teens, puberty, and certainly by their 20s, and that's not what we're talking about here. Those melanomas identify themselves very, very early. For the most part, it's like Dr. Daniel says, you know, it's because, hey, there are kids, you know. Thank you. And a question for Dr. Wong, actually. Um, so the question from one of our online participants, certain medications have increased sensitivities to sun exposure. Are there particular me medications that increase risk to melanoma as well? Medication increased risk to melanoma. Well, it's the major thing we see as well is that, you know, Dr. Daniel spoke about immune therapy, where you are, you know, um, you know, increasing your body's immunity to fight cancer. And why is that even part of our discussion? We figured out that in the, this is many, many years ago before we had viable immune therapy like we have now, where we noticed that individuals who have low immune systems, either because they were born that way or because of some disease or because we gave them immunosuppressants, right, uh, it becomes uh, a, 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 that these patients have a higher incidence of melanoma, and also other skin cancers to the point where in situations like um, uh, organ transplant clinics where, where they are obliged to, at least early on, uh, be very vigorous in their, in their anti-rejection drugs, which suppresses the, uh, the, the, the recipient's own immune system, that many of them have dermatologists embedded within their clinics recognizing these can be problematic. And that's a major category I can think of, unless Dr. Daniels has something in mind. I agree. Um, immune suppression is clearly related. There are other medications that correlate, um, but uh, are of unclear significance. You know, for example, um, there were reports uh, a few years back about Viagra causing melanoma, and it's gone back and forth. And um, you know, again, there's nothing definitive. I don't counsel patients that um, they need to stay away from Viagra just because of the melanoma risk. It's it's, it's not clear. Um, so, but one can always hypothesize that the way these medications um, work in these networks I was referring to that um, there there could be something there 
for example, there's people looking at different blood pressure medications such as beta blockers to see if that can help lower um, melanomas or other cancers too. So it's a good question. I, I again, uh, always great questions that uh, we are struggling to, to answer, but uh, the immune drugs are the, uh, they're the clear bad ones. Thank you. Um, and a question now for Dr. Daniels from one of our online participants. So what is the difference between NED, no evidence of disease, and remission? Why does my doctor say NED instead of remission? Is it, could you comment yeah. on that? Yep. And then um, the other one would be cure that, that uh, Dr. Wong mentioned. So NED really is that state where no evidence of disease. You may or may not be on a therapy at that moment, um, but it's looking at you as a as a person in the clinic, talking to you, seeing how life's going, and then comparing that to the scans, and we come up with this little stamp that says, yep, NED, can't find anything. Remission, um, for me, uh, means that somebody is, their cancer's not active. Um, there might be something that we can measure, but... I haven't seen it change for a while. It's not active, and they're off therapy. Um, so that would be a remission. And then the cure would be, now I can't find anything. They've been off therapy for a while, and um, I'm pretty confident here it's not coming back. Again, uh, we always need more long-term data. But I'm not even going to scan you anymore. Yeah, I'm so confident. And that's actually, we have data back with interleukin-2 showing that patients back in the 80s were exposed to the medication and went decades without uh, needing any further um, therapies. And those I would put in um, the cure category. You could also characterize them as NED and in remission. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Um, Wong, do you want to comment as well? I tell my patients <clears throat> when I'm fighting for is I want my 10-year Christmas card, please. So this is this is and this is really these I have to say the questions are really very interesting today and also we have wonderful uh, speakers to address them so it's really terrific and um, so there's another question here from one of our online participants we have lots of them. Um, so, um, well, we've, we've addressed this, but let me put it on the table again. What can I do to prevent getting skin, skin cancer besides wear sunscreen? So, um, Dr. Wong, do you want to address that? Well, I, I think it's just uh, attention to uh, the risk factors, right? So, I mean, there's some things you cannot change, right? You can't change who your parents are. You can't change the genes that you got, right? <clears throat> but you, you can change things that put you at increased risk. So I, I tell folks, you know, um, because the sun is a known um, uh, instigator, it's, it's, it, it accounts for uh, a proportion of the risk, not all of it, of course, but a proportion of the risk, uh, you, this is something you can do. So, um, you know, we're going at a melanoma conference, You can, most of the time you see a, we're, we're a pretty pale-looking bunch, honestly. Right? And, uh, and the reason for that is because that's how, that is a risk factor you can modify. Uh, so you heard my statements before about sunscreen and the discussion about that. I'm a big fan of barrier uh, protection, so, you know, attention to those things. And, and you know, the word suntanning bed is a word that should never enter your vocabulary, right, uh, because, you know, you're, you're going to the, to the den of the actual risk factor itself, which is to bathe yourself in UV damaging UV radiation. I remind folks that that uh, that when you get dark from tanning, that's a injury reaction to the cells in your skin that make melanin. You've injured them, and when they are injured, they make this thing called melanin, which makes your skin darker. So, <laughs> in some ways, tanning is an injury response. If you want to, you know, speak of it scientifically, um, Dr. Daniels, any did I miss something? Yeah, uh, I think uh, sun is the is the overwhelming one, but I would uh, put a plug in for exercise and maintaining a healthy weight. So exercise, um, again, you have to work it around um, peak sun times um, to avoid that risk factor itself, but daily exercise uh, should be encouraged and lowers not just for skin cancer, really every cancer across the board, healthy weight, um, 
that's there are estimates out there that more than 10 to maybe even 15 percent of the cancers in the U.S. we can blame on obesity. And so getting to that healthy weight with uh, appropriate diet, high in fiber, low processed foods, and exercise um, is good. Sometimes when people ask this question, what they're looking for is the answer of a supplement. I try to discourage this, um, taking, taking more pills. Um, but I have to admit there is some data to suggest that certain B vitamins can lower um, the incidence of some skin cancers, um, but that's a commitment to taking a fairly high dose of vitamin B3 at least twice a day. And uh, I let our dermatologists um, spearhead that for non-melanoma skin cancers, such as uh, cutaneous squamous cells, um, just because um, it should be part of a, a aggressive kind of monitoring program too. Can I cut in here for a second, Dr. Yes, Messner? Please, yes. Uh, please. Uh, Greg, you've, you've touched on an area which we're studying. Almost all my patients talk to me at some point or another about, you know, what can I do? What are the things I yeah. can eat or change? And I, <clears throat> I tell them, you know, I have opinions but no facts, right? Because we don't we don't have the science behind it. And recognizing that, uh, my colleague uh, Jennifer McQuaid is opening a clinical trial here at MD Anderson for melanoma patients who are currently free of disease in which we're doing a dietary modification. We will, uh, she and her program will provide all the meals for a six-week period for patients who are in the trial, and they'll measure things in the blood, including immune markers, because there's never been an intervention which we can say, you know, this changes that, right? There's lots of opinion, uh, right? And, you know, I always say, you know, in the same vein as whether or not the Astros will win the World Series again, let me talk to you about food, just to set the tone that this is opinion, not fact. Dr. McQuaid is trying, going to try to provide data for that. So I applaud her efforts. It's hard to do, uh, but it's a dietary intervention trials for melanoma patients who are currently NED, your disease or in remission, if you wish, uh, who are willing to, to eat our food for six weeks. It's good food, by the way. I've tasted it, so it's not bad. Mm, sounds fantastic. This is wonderful. I have to say this a this has been an extraordinary call. I actually want to thank you. This has been actually different than any of the other calls we've done on the subject. So we've had a lot of different areas, and I want to thank our speakers who are extraordinary, phenomenal. And I also want to thank all of you who actually really asked us really good questions, actually from the get-go to the very end, and then all the responses of our speakers really helping to really make the call, just bring things up that perhaps they Weren't, weren't discussed in the first part or were touched on and were more elaborated on. And so this is very interesting about this study, and we'll hear more about it, I'm sure. Um, I also, um, I know there are many more questions in queue, and I know we could stay on the phone much longer, but we did say it would be an hour call. So I do want to go over with you, um, you know, how to get your questions answered if you still have questions. So we always, of course, suggest your healthcare team as a go-to group to go to because they know you the best. They know all about you, they know um, any medications you're taking, they know a little bit more about your lifestyle, and, and it's a good place to bring the information you've learned today. Even if you asked a question today or heard one of the questions and responses and information, take it back to your treating healthcare team and see how it best applies to you. That's really important. Um, in addition, I know many of you do want to find credible places to ask questions. So at the end of today's program, well, actually by tomorrow, well, actually by uh, probably by um, actually next week, you will get an evaluation form. The evaluation form will have all the resources that we mentioned, and particularly the specific ones on melanoma. So, um, and they all have a call center where you can call, and they have lots of materials um, that you'll be able to access information from. So that's a very good source to go to um, the, the resources we give you. And all the different cancer organizations we partner with, um, um, in addition, we always recommend the National Cancer Institute. Um, they have a, a, an 800 number, and also they have um, a live chat feature on their website where you can post your question and their information specialist will, uh, will address it. So that's really good for people in the U.S. as well as internationally as well. And all of the uh, organizations that we partner with do have websites, and so you can ask questions from them as well. And for those of you who would like to pursue getting services from Cancer Care, you can simply call us at one 800 8134673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. 
We also have um, many more programs coming up. You'll be getting information about them. They are too many to list at this point. Um, they are on our website, and um, you also will be getting it in your evaluation from all the upcoming programs. You can see what we're offering going forward. I also want to thank you all for your participation today. You've been a phenomenal group, and I want to wish you all very well. Thank you very much. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.